everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Bad Enunciator Knockriner. Corey Bad Enunciator Knockriner. <laughs> I just feel like I'll probably slur or mess up some words today on the podcast. Who knows? I guess we'll see. Corey is drunk. <laughs> uh, on today's episode, it is time to chat about our latest WatchGuard Threat Lab quarterly internet security report. And with that, let's go ahead and stroll on in. I could use a nice stroll. You and me both. So it is now, what, almost February. Man, 2022 is sure flying by. And so for those of you that uh, haven't had a chance to check out our most recent WatchGuard webinar from just, I think, a week and a half ago about now, uh, it is time to chat about our latest quarterly internet security report. Uh, Due to the holidays and some other projects going on, we were a little bit later than we typically are with publishing both the podcast and the uh the report itself and the webinar. Um, so the one that we're going to be chatting about right now is technically Q3 of 2021. Uh, we've already started work on Q4 of 2021 and hopefully have that following up here pretty soon as well. Um, but even though it's a couple months old now from when the data was actually gathered, uh, there's still some interesting trends that we want to talk about this week on our podcast. Um, so I guess before we dive into the report, Corey, you want to give a overview for those that haven't heard one of these security report episodes on what our quarterly report is and why we like talking about it? Yeah. So so basically, the quarterly report is where we can actually take quantifiable data from our products. And uh, you know, if you opt into, we, we now do various products, both network and endpoint. And if you opt into data sharing, we get threat intelligence. We see what attacks are hitting on your device, whether they be network attacks, malware, and things like that. By the way, the good news is if you're a WatchGuard customer and you're using our products, we're seeing this because your device is blocking it. So you're, you're safe. Uh, but we get good idea of what bad guys are hap- doing. And uh, we like to pay attention to this threat intelligence because it gives us signs of the trends that attackers are doing in their attacks that in our, our reporters to report on those that direct analysis and trends, but also to give you know up-to-date advice. How can we adjust our defenses or what should we focus on based on what the attackers are doing? And we'll cover it, but uh, basically each report starts with the Firebox feed. That's kind of the marketing name for the type of data the Firebox sends us. And we'll talk about what that data is coming up. Uh, We also now include endpoint trends. I think we're to the point where we might be able to include it every quarter. They used to only track it every year. Uh, so at worst, it might be bi- biannual, but lately we've been able to do a couple quarters in a row so we can share what our endpoint is seeing as far as malware. And by the way, it's interesting that differs from network all the time. We've said it before, but networks tends to see droppers and stagers and less the actual final payload. Whereas if you're on the endpoint, you see what the attackers are really doing at the end. Uh, and then finally, the final section we tend to have is it can either be a research section where maybe one of our team members has done some very specific research or found a new vulnerability. Or if, if we're having a busy quarter, it also sometimes becomes our top security incident instead, where we talk about a big industry event from the quarter, but we share some additional tech detail that you may not have heard in additional learnings. So that's generally what the report is. And despite its sharing scary attack trends, the point is actually more to focus on understanding 
the evolution of attack so that you can update your defenses and not have to worry about all this. Yeah. And so like Corey said, this is all built from folks that have opted into sharing this information with us. If you are a WatchGuard customer, which chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, there's a high likelihood you are. Uh, under the general settings for your Firebox appliance, there's a checkbox that says send device feedback to WatchGuard. And like Corey said, it gives us a bunch of threat intelligence. It also gives product management some just usage information so they can figure out where to focus their attention for the coming year. Um, but really, that threat intel we get from those blocked threats is what the bulk of this report is made up of. Um, in, in Q3 of 2021, we tend to hover around 30 to 40,000 appliances reporting in. Q3, we had around 35,000 or so, which is lower than we typically see. Uh, this tends to fluctuate uh, depending on you know new installations where maybe those boxes haven't been checked, appliances that not, uh, may not have seen any uh, threat data from the that quarter, for example. Um, it does tend to only represent around like 10 to 15 percent or so of all of our deployed fireboxes out there too so i would say the 10 percent is probably when it gets to the 40s right now it's probably under 10 percent yep. at thirty-five thousand. but even then with thirty-five thousand networks reporting in we still get good intelligence from really around the world to build this report and i guess let's start with the firebox feed and specifically the malware section uh where in the report, we start with a high-level overview of just statistics on what the malware trends look like, and then dive into some individual threats that were new for the given quarter. Um, at a high level, if we look at malware trends, Corey, you want to rattle off our just overall numbers sure. that we saw? Yeah, basically. Uh, so one thing we didn't cover, I, I glossed over it, but do you know the Firebox feed, this data we're talking about, it comes from essentially five of our services. Uh, three of them are anti-malware service, so Gateway Antivirus is normal, kind of legacy signature-based. Intelligent AV is one that uses m machine learning and thus it's more proactive, and it makes its decision immediately using a machine learning model. And finally, we have APT Blocker, which is a behavioral malware sandbox. Can make immediate decisions when it sees something it's seen before, but if it's never seen it before, it will upload it to a sandbox. APT Blocker, by the way, is one of the best things to catch malware, though, because you know they can change the signature of their files, but the behavior they can't change that well. So those are the three different AV services. I'll get to the highlights in a two seconds, but we also use intrusion prevention service to detect network server and network client attacks, you know, whether they're coming into your servers or just your clients going to bad places. And then DNS watches at the highest level, we call it a DNS firewall, but it, it, it will look for compromised sites, phishing sites, botnet sites, and if one of your users accidentally clicks on one of those, we can block it using that. So the reason I bring this all up is this quarter, uh, malware detection was overall kind of down overall, although it was up per box, if I remember correctly. So we had less boxes reporting, but they were reporting more malware per box. But gateway antivirus, about 8.7 million variants were uh, detections were seen over Q3. Uh, which, you know, is down about 10% quarter over quarter. APT blocker, on the other hand, the one we catch with our behavioral device, that increased 4% to 72 
And you can see right away, you know, our most advanced behavioral detection is catching almost as much as signature-based. And you should also realize that anything it catches is something signature-based by definition missed. You know, the GAV didn't catch it if APT blockers catching 7.2 million. So while, while malware was down overall, it's, it's interesting to know these advanced threats are still up quite a bit. On top of that, lately, now only a few of our boxes do this. I think it's around 20%, maybe lower, but we have an option to do TLS decryption. So we can decrypt secure web traffic. And uh, so the amount of malware we saw over encrypted connections decreased a little bit to only 307,000. By the way, again, the reason that's so low in, in the first place is very few Fireboxes are configured to do this. We wish more people did it. That said, uh, those inspecting TLS, you know, this encrypted traffic, they saw 69.8% of their malware come over encrypted connections. So that's almost, or I think it's over two thirds. So it really means if you're not, in, you know, if you're not inspecting encrypted web traffic, you might be missing a lot of the malware out there. And by the way, this HTTPS decryption is a free feature no matter what Firebox license you have. So we highly encourage you to use it. Yeah, that is actually a, a really good point I want to touch on. We have talked about it a few times, both on this podcast and in webinars and the report, and that it feels like malware these days is, I mean, I think it's, it's not even that it feels like. We have evidence to suggest that malware these days is increasingly coming over encrypted connections. And Part of that really is that the internet as a whole is increasingly using encryption finally. I think last time I checked, we're at like 95% of all internet traffic that Google sees through their browsers and their site uses encryption. It's because tools like Let's Encrypt have made it easy and free for anyone to set up TLS certificates on a website and use encryption. And while that helps protect the privacy of all of us as we browse the internet, browse different websites, it also makes it easier for attackers to... Um, make some of their malware slip past perimeters that aren't inspecting that traffic. And again, a common um, response that we get is that, you know, it's not just as easy as checking a checkbox on your Firebox or whatever UTM you have. It does take a bit of work, but it's one of those where that work that you put in, uh, setting it up and adding exceptions for apps that use cert pinning, for example, that work you put in directly translates to increased security by re-enabling that entire layer of protection that you're otherwise missing if you're not inspecting this traffic. And the work should only equal a few days at most a few weeks of pain. And by, by pain, I only mean we, we think if you use it the right way, it's very quick to set up. The issue are the exceptions that Mark alluded to. And it's not like you're going to get 100 exceptions every day. You might get a help desk call here and there saying, hey, I used the Dropbox client and it, it's not working. And because the client might pin a certificate, you might have to put an exception for that. But within, once you get past that, you know, once you get past the initial exceptions, it should work just fine after that point with very little interruption or issue with you. Some people ask us about speed too. And while way back in the early days of slower appliances, that used to be a big deal. For the most part, if you're buying the right appliance for your amount of users, I don't think, yes, this is decrypting and re-encrypting, which technically takes more resource. But if you have the right box for your size, it, it doesn't really cause an issue in my network. Uh, and one other thing I wanna point out is our technology integrations team 
constantly looks for these exceptions that we see constantly or consistently added to the firebox and we add them as defaults and the default https proxy action where you know dropbox is one of those examples where the application on windows and mac it uses cert pinning meaning that application will only allow connections if it is signed with a specific certificate authority and a specific cert um, so that's one where we have to have an exception for it there's no way to decrypt it without breaking the app uh, and that is one of the ones that is in there by default, along with others that are along the same lines. Um, so yeah, like Corey said, definitely worth it. It's it is a not it's a non-zero amount of effort you have to put in, um, but over time it allows you to again use anti-malware services and IPS services on all of your traffic. Then again, or at least the ones that you don't have to have exceptions for. Um, so that was the high-level look at malware. Um, we're not going to go too much into detail, I guess, during this podcast. I'd say check out the report for all of the details that we have. Um, but uh, at a high level, looking at the top malware, um, there were only three or so brand new malware variants in our top 10 list by volume. So again, this is malware that is strictly looking at by volume. So the amount of hits it had globally uh, across the world. Um, we tend to see at least some movement in this list quarter after quarter, at least one or two or so new threats in there. Uh, I use the word new here very loosely and that often some of these threats are New exploiting. to top 10, yes. not necessarily new to the world. <laughs> Correct. Many of these threats often exploit uh, older vulnerabilities in applications. Like for example, in this report, we've got a new to the top 10 vulnerability from 2018 in Microsoft Office. Um, a lot of office vulnerabilities like CVE 2017 11882 uh, pop up every single quarter as just widely exploited flaws, mostly due to how easy they are to actually attack a vulnerable system with if it hasn't been updated. Uh, this quarter was the first time we saw a new vulnerability in the equation editor in office, uh, CVE 2018-0802, which... I mean, kind of cool from a data perspective of seeing attackers evolve to slightly newer vulnerabilities. Um, but, you know, I pointed out last year there was a brand new vulnerability in, I think, the HTTP library within Office and Internet Explorer that I figured was going to become one of the more widely exploited vulnerabilities over the course of the next few years. We haven't seen that pop up in the top 10 list. That said, I imagine it's only a matter of time before we start seeing attackers switch to something like that. I bet we will. I, I think ha attackers are always a little behind in that they're efficient. Why why waste the new? They, they go for low-hanging fruit. Why waste the new stuff if the old stuff is still working? And it's when really they stop getting gains from the old stuff that they start adding new things to their exploit kit. So I think you're right on that vulnerability coming on this list, but I'm not overly surprised hackers continually use old stuff as long as it works meaning unfortunately a lot of people out there still don't patch basically hackers are lazy efficient <laughs> is the nice way to spin it but yeah lazy if i were to add in one minute or less two other interesting standouts one was something in our top two spot generic kd this however is more like a we it's called a hack tool by malware because it can be legitimate or evil uh, and generic KD is a signature that will detect something called SBD, which is just a Linux unit. It's a Netcat clone. If you're a network administrator, you surely know what Netcat is. This is just another variant of Netcat type stuff. As you know, that's not necessarily malicious. But as you also know, Netcat or this is 
something a bad guy could use on a victimized computer to open listening ports really quickly as they're doing things. I also found another hack tool interesting but down in our number nine spot, which we listed as application Linux WinEXE. And uh, WinEXE might make you think Windows executable, like but that's not it. Sounds like an Linux WinEXE. Yeah, Linux WinEXE. <laughs> yeah, weird. Really what that is, is a Unix-based RDP server. You know, you, you all know VN, VLC or, or RDP or all these remote control servers. That's a Unix-based remote desktop app. So again, could be used legitimately too, but often VLC, DLLs, or things like this are what bad guys use to remotely control computers. So just a couple other interesting highlights from the top 10. Yep, we've got a few other specific threats, even some outside of the top 10 that we highlight inside the report itself. Uh, highly recommend you go check that out. Trevor did a good job of analyzing not just the malware, but also some of the delivery mechanisms we saw from them as well. Quick spoiler on that one, many of them come in over Office documents or compromised Office documents or masquerading as a legitimate Office document. So if you've got one takeaway from the malware section this quarter, and honestly, it's a pretty common trend across many quarters in our report, it's that Office documents still seem to be the go-to for attackers for delivering a lot of these threats. And it makes sense. Like, if uh, even if you know my my mom saw a executable show up as an attachment in her inbox, she knows not to download that and run no it way. unless they've done a really good job of masquerading it somehow. But an Office document, like to an untrained user, they may not know that it could potentially be a a malware dropper. And if they haven't updated Office in a while, or if they click that enable editing button, or even worse, run macros button, then that's all it takes in order to deliver this malware and start the attack chain. Microsoft should change their dialogue from run macros, parentheses, malware, parentheses. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, there are legitimate uses for I know, macros. I know, I know. I'm being facetious. But man, at <laughs> We this use point, macros in our accounting spreadsheets still. <laughs> correct, yes. I mean, at this point, like if you're getting a, an Office document, especially from like an external source and it's got macros enabled, that's- Nope. You're just, yeah, nope is the correct response to that one. <laughs> Not today, bad guy. Um, so last like big high-level stat from the malware section is one of the numbers that we track every quarter is this zero-day malware number. Uh, different than a zero-day exploit, we don't need Corey to get into arguments on Twitter over this one again. Uh, but when we say zero-day malware, we're talking about malware that doesn't have a signature. So either it's brand new and they're, you know, malware engines, anti-malware engines haven't created a signature for it. Or more commonly, it's old malware that's been run through a tool like a packer or a cryptor or some other obfuscation technique in order to mask the fact that it is malicious. Um, you can go out there on GitHub or on underground forums or anywhere and for free or like 10 bucks, find many of these tools that can take any old malware payload and allow them to evade a lot of signature-based detections. It's really easy attackers to enact this these days. And that's reflected in the data that we see where in Q3 of 2021, 67.2% of all the malware that we saw was what we classified as zero-day malware. Uh, meaning that if you just use signature-based anti-malware and don't have any of the more proactive anti-malware engines or layers behind picking up the slack, you're missing more than two-thirds of all mal malware that's out there. Um, so big takeaway from that, again, Signature-based anti-malware engines still caught by volume significantly more than the other engines. Actually, not even significantly, just more these days. 
they're good at catching yeah. the the noise over two thirds is more yeah <laughs> uh they're good at like identifying quickly whether or known threats but on their own signature based anti-malware engines are not good enough to protect you from every single threat that's out there in fact a third will slip through uh two-thirds will slip through yeah interestingly we saw slightly less zero-day malware via https remember people that are using https most of the malware 68 percent if i remember the number i said earlier does come through encryption and yet the amount that is more more evasive is a little bit lower than general at only 47%. So that's slightly interesting. By the way, that's not to encourage you not to enable this for HTTPS2. It's just a interesting stat we keep track of. Yep. Uh, so let's move on now to the network attack section, uh, which is where we look at detections from the intrusion prevention system on the Firebox. So this is a signature-based service that looks for attempted exploits of known vulnerabilities or types of attacks against both web applications. So traditional ones, think like your web server hosting, uh, Outlook Web Access, or some other web server, uh, or clients that connect out over a network. So it also catches attacks against your browser or other client-based network-connected applications uh, that your users may trigger as they browse to accidentally malicious sites, for example. Um, and at a high level, network attacks actually went down quarter over quarter for the first time in over a year. Um, so for the last year, it's been trending up to varying degrees every single quarter. Uh, actually, for the last like few years, it's been trending upward for quite some bit from back in Q3 2018. It was below a million detections each quarter to in Q2 of last year. It was just over 5 million, which is the highest we'd seen it in quite some time. Uh, this quarter, though, was down to just above 4 million or so, which was still 116 detections per appliance, though. So still an important service to enable if you are a WatchGuard customer, because it does a good job of catching a lot of these automated attacks that we tend to see. And we'll get into that to a second. Um, but when we look at the top 10 network attacks for the quarter, I guess that second is here. Corey, you want to go over that that top 10 list and why we believe a lot of these are automated? Well, we believe a lot of them are automated because there's a lot of older generic stuff. So first of all, the top 10, you know, Mark mentioned that malware wise, we at least see new stuff semi-regularly in the top 10 malware. In the top 10 network attacks, it's even more the same old things over and over. There's only really one new and by by new, I mean new to our top 10. It's actually a very old vulnerability. Only one new thing. If I were to summarize this, a lot of stuff we see on this list every quarter is web application flaws. So generic SQL injection, generic cross-site scripting. The reason I say generic is we have these signatures that catch common methods for SQL injection and cross-site scripting. And they would trigger on all kinds of different cross-site scripting attacks. We see those all the time uh, showing that, you know, that or directory traversal bad guys are always trying those normal attacks against your site. The one new one, uh, it's called Web Remote File Inclusion Etsy Password. And if anyone knows about Unix systems, Etsy Password is where you have hashes for your passwords. Uh, this is a very old generic protection to catch a number of vulnerabilities where Etsy Password 
W it's actually pass WD is on the Unix system, but where that has been exposed. If I go to your website, I shouldn't be able to get into the web servers directory where that is and get all your passwords. But there's been a number of vulnerabilities over the history of time where that was, uh, th there was permission ways for bad guys to get there. And uh, I won't go into all the detail, but this that's a very old signature although it's still very relevant today. But when it was originally brought out, it was actually for Internet uh, Information Services, IIS 4 and 5. For the old bearded security folks like me that remember NIMDA and Code Red and these IIS worms that are from, it, it seems like the history of time. Mark's like, was I even, you were, he was obviously born, but he's probably in high school then. You know, it's really uh, this this flaw was one of the things that helped NIMDA, and we explain a lot of that in the report. So, long story short, uh, the only new one is an old signature, and the rest are a lot of either old attacks or generic web application detection. Why do we see so much old in the top ten? We believe it's because of automation. You know, whether legitimate pen testers or uh, botnets that do what's called mass scans. It's very common to scan the internets for open ports. And just if you see port 80, you spam every port 80 exploit you know from the history of time against it. Botnets often have a mass scan command that do that. But also good guys may be doing this against your network. If you've hired a pen testers to do an audit, they may be doing that. And since we think these automated scans represent most of the traffic, it unfortunately means the stuff we are going to see the most is just these old known exploits that that get you know constantly sent in the normal scan. Yep. Uh, so again, the bulk of it was mostly those automated ones. Um, another one last final interesting stat from the network attack section was when we look at the geographic breakout of these network attacks, even once we weight them towards the number of fireboxes reporting into each region, the Americas, so North, Central, and South America, saw almost two-thirds of all of the global network attacks. Um, so if you're in the States or Mexico or anywhere in South America, uh, make sure that you've got your, uh, your internet-exposed applications patched and up-to-date because apparently uh, we all over here on this side of the world are the ones under attack most recently. Um, last main section for the Firebox feed is where we look at the top malware domains or malicious domains uh, from our DNS watch service. Uh, while we categorize them in a bunch of different buckets internally, the three main categories that we look at in each report are what we call compromised websites, which are otherwise legitimate websites that are hosting something malicious, typically because an attacker got in by exploiting a flaw in the site itself. Uh, second category is malware. So these are websites involved in distributing malware or malware command and control connections. And then phishing, which are websites involved in, as you might guess, phishing campaigns. And while we go into quite a few of them in detail in the report, there's one interesting standout I wanted to highlight from the quarter, and that was a auto-discover domain. So if you remember earlier last year, researchers found that Outlook actually has a sequence that it follows when attempting to authenticate your email address and password to a domain and figure out how to actually connect to an email server. Uh, like It first starts out by trying to authenticate to your domain.com, and then it tries varying uh, combinations of your domain and auto-discover, your domain and on Microsoft, your domain and other subdomains. And researchers found that some of those 
uh, attack or were not actually owned by Microsoft. And so basically an attacker could squat a domain, set up something that looks like a uh, Outlook authentication API to uh, Outlook. And if it makes it that way down to the list of that domain, the Outlook client unknowingly will send those credentials straight to that server. So it's a way for attackers to basically set up infrastructure and steal credentials without users having any idea that this is going on behind the scenes. Because again, this process is all hidden to the end user. It's just Outlook attempting to figure out where to log into to grab email messages for the client. Um, so after this research came out, we added a few thousand or so domains to our threat list um, to cover a lot of these uh, potentially squatted uh, destinations for uh, auto-discover. And in just a short period of time, we actually saw one of the auto-discover domains get nearly 12,000 hits uh, for the quarter. Uh, and again, these are all connections that you as a user would have no idea were going on behind the scenes. So this is where services like DNS firewalling with DNS Watch really do a good job of identifying a lot of these threats and protecting you from threats that you didn't necessarily even know existed. Uh, again, there's a few other notable standouts from the quarter in the top malicious domains. Highly recommend checking out the report sections for those to figure out what they do and uh, how we were able to detect them and what they were hosting. Uh, with that, though, like Corey, maybe we can go over some of the, the highlights from at least the Firebox feed section um, from the report, or I guess our, our key takeaways for it. You want to grab the first one? Yeah, sure. And I think the first one is based on uh, mostly what you just said, that auto-discover flaw. And it says you should protect your Exchange servers again. Uh, we've been talking about Exchange a lot in this report lately because of Hafnium. Uh, you might remember the flaws. And I believe uh, researchers believe this new auto-discovery thing was used in, in, in conjunction with Hafnium too. But long story short is you can actually configure your Exchange policy not to use auto-discover. Uh, it's, it's policy configuration. So I would Google that, uh, go to Microsoft support and make sure to avoid using auto-discover at all. The other tip there too, by the way, is I, I believe the way you hijack, you, you leverage this, is it requires HTTP basic authentication to really happen. So you don't necessarily have, you can disable that. If you use modern authentication methods, you don't have to enable HTTP basic authentication. And that will also help you for this auto discover issue that was talked about. So in general, harden your Exchange server. Uh, and and not using auto-discover and, and disabling basic authentication, HTTP basic authentication will help. Yep. Uh, next up, protect Microsoft Office. So again, we mentioned many of the malware threats and even some of the exploits we see in IPS tend to target Office documents and vulnerabilities in Microsoft Office. And while Microsoft has done a pretty good job recently of adding a lot of protections to combat some of these, including protected modes. So that mode where you have to click enable editing for really anything to execute in that document at all. Sometimes we do see vulnerabilities that can potentially even get past that as well, or strong phishing tied to the document to trick the user into clicking that enable editing button. Um, what that means is really make sure you've got a strong effort of ensuring that Office is updated on all of your client workstations to try and combat some of those vulnerabilities that these documents exploit. Uh, we always talk about how your phishing awareness training should include training on how to spot malicious Office documents, but that really does need to be backed up with good application update practices to ensure that 
these flaws that the attackers are exploiting are patched as well. Uh, we've seen a lot of them no longer even really bother with macros, and all it takes instead is one of these vulnerabilities to execute the attack and start what ultimately becomes a fileless malware attack against the system itself. Um, Corey, you want to grab the last one? Yeah, sure. And the last one is just a general tip to adopt zero trust by segmenting your network. You know, some of the malware we found isn't necessarily malware. It's just gray tools, hacker tools, tools that can be used for good or bad, like NetCAD or, or RDP, that if they get on one computer, they might try to communicate with another computer that's on another one of your internal networks. And in general, if you apply zero trust, you're applying limited least privilege principle to the inside of your network too. That means you should have segments of, of varying trusts. Your servers may live on a totally different network segment than your less trusted, your normal employee desktops because your servers have more critical information. Your IoT may live in a different physical network segment than the normal user. Sure, in these segments, you would have policies that do allow things between these segments as needed, but by applying that segment, you one can have, for instance, the Firebox reapply all the security rules. Even if you're allowing, for instance, port 80 traffic from your your less trusted works or desktop segment to your more trusted server one, you can reapply IPS and malware protection to all that internal traffic too. So the more you segment in, internally, the more options you have for applying the least privilege principle, but also for turning on some of the security services to continue to scan even when traffic is moving inside your network, which will help you with lateral movement if one of the segments ever does get a computer that was owned. Yep. Uh, so moving on for time's sake, our top security incident for the quarter, it feels a bit old now, uh, but we chatted about the Kaseya ransomware incident. Corey and I did a bit of a breaking news uh, webinar on this topic back when the, the story first broke on it. I highly recommend checking that out if you... I think we had a podcast on it too at too. the time, yep. right? If you've been living under a rock for the last year, there's still some good information in there. Uh, but in the report, we go into a bit more detail of the actual vulnerabilities that the attackers exploited in order to carry out this attack. So if you want to see a technical analysis of the uh, exploit chain, highly recommend checking out the report. Doesn't really translate too well to a podcast, so we'll go ahead and skip over that. I will say if you're interested, there are updates, though. I mean, we didn't know as much about the vulnerabilities, even if you listen to our podcast back in, was it April or whatever? Not April, no, July, I should say. Um, so last section of the report we'll, that we'll chat about was the endpoint threats. And like Corey mentioned, these tend to differ quite a bit from what we see at the perimeter, because at the perimeter, we'll catch the first stage in the malware, the dropper, whereas at the endpoint, we tend to see the actual final attack payloads that the attackers are trying to deliver onto that victim. Uh, we track a few different things every single quarter uh, when we have this data available. One of them is how malware is getting onto the system. We call it the malware infection origin. Uh, if you remember from our Q4 2020 report, is that right? Yes, that is right. Uh, we, I think it was the first time we were able to show this data, and we showed that malware infection originating from script-based threats had skyrocketed from the previous years. I think it was somewhere around like 666% increase from Q 2019 to 2020. And that increase has only continued uh, since that very first report with this data. 
And in fact, at the end of September, so the end of Q3 2021, uh, Mauer delivered via scripts had already reached 110% of its previous total. Uh, so these fileless living off the land attacks definitely seem like the main method that attackers are initiating their malware attacks against endpoints. And it makes sense. It's pretty difficult to detect if you don't have the right tools. Things like EDR that'll watch existing processes, watch memory, watch what some of your applications like PowerShell are actually doing. And so you can still allow administrators to use PowerShell without just blocking it entirely, but catch some of these threats that abuse these tools that we use uh, to launch script-based attacks. Uh, we also chat about uh, malware that came in exploiting internet browsers specifically and show some data from the last year or so where there was actually a big spike in attacks targeting Internet Explorer, even though it's got a significantly smaller market share than the rest of the browsers. Um, definitely recommend checking that out. And then we also go over ransomware detections too, which again, uh, by the end of Q3 2021, they'd already surpassed their 2020 total. And I think it's on track for being around 150% of the previous year's total. So even though ransomware is still down from the peak that we saw in 2018, it appears to be trending back upwards now, I guess because attackers are finding people are still paying ransoms. When will that ever end, Corey? When we stop paying. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so with that, let's go over our final takeaways for the report. Uh, Corey, you want to grab the last one? Or the first oh, one? I was going to say, are we going backwards? <laughs> yes. Uh, so the first one, uh, basically, I think in the report, we call it the attacks can't stop, won't stop. But but really what the, the tip is all about is to layer your anti-malware. You heard at the beginning that we have three different types of anti-malware uh, with uh, our Firebox, the gateway antivirus, intelligent AV machine learning, and APT blocker behavioral analysis. And the long story short is behavioral analysis catches almost, uh, you know, as much malware as the first one, which means the first two are missing things. Uh, if you do not have APT blocker, you're missing, you know, over two thirds of the malware out there. Uh, so we really heavily recommend uh, whether you're using our products or other products, it's, it's very much the same. They're probably going to have similar, you know, the difference between signature based versus machine learning versus behavioral. They may have their own versions of that. And you should always make sure you're using the most advanced, you know, behavioral. And from the endpoint state of things, uh, there's EPP stands for endpoint prevention. And it's mostly about blocking viruses you can right away. But endpoints realize they miss things too, which is why they also have something called EDR, endpoint detection and response, which is more about paying attention to current indicators, processes, other changes happening on your computer, or things like PowerShell executing and doing unusual things. Make sure to layer that anti-malware with additional EDR so that you catch all this, this malware that evades typical you know, traditional legacy protections. Yep. Next one is supply chain attacks are here to stay. And again, this kind of goes off of the Kaseya incident that we highlighted in the report and that these attacks against both technology supply chains and uh, managed service providers targeting their customers seem to be a in another increasing trend going forward. Attackers are finding that if they go after one organization, they can potentially hit a lot of victims on the other end of that attack. Now, what this means is make sure you're using technologies like zero trust or uh, techniques like zero trust 
in order to segment your network and limit some of the blast radius if one of your applications ends up being compromised. And from a service provider level, uh, make sure that you are focusing on your security as well and not just your customers to limit the potential of you becoming a victim and it ultimately impacting everyone that you work with. Uh, Corey, you want to nab the very last one then to round it out? Yeah, the last one is is pay attention to your Microsoft stuff. Microsoft products need your undivided attention, whether it comes down to making sure to follow Patch Tuesday on the second Tuesday of every month and keep all your Microsoft stuff patched, or if it comes down to hardening any of your Microsoft products with the latest Microsoft advice. And this comes from, obviously, we mentioned Office. Office is the target of malicious documents. Make sure your users are aware of that. And more importantly, make sure you're completely patched so some of these flaws don't affect your version of Office. And of course, the exchange flaw we mentioned. It's always important to understand how the latest vulnerabilities in Microsoft packages work because you can often mitigate them just by changing a needed policy. So pay attention to Microsoft, keep up to date with patches and make sure to harden those servers. Yep. So that was a quick overview. If you want to see the report itself or maybe just an executive summary, it's at watchguard.com slash security report. Uh, definitely check it out. If you find anything interesting that you want to, you feel like we should have chatted about, you can always tweet at us also. Um, yeah, man, time to get cracking on the next report, I suppose. Hopefully get yep. that out here soon too. See you in two months. Yep. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.